Hello and welcome back to the Energy Flux podcast. I'm your host, Seb Kennedy, founding editor of the Energy Flux newsletter. And if you haven't done so already, head on over to www.energyflux.news where you can sign up for free email updates and uh, to get alerts about new shows and a whole load of original content about the energy transition. Now, it's my uh, great pleasure this week to be uh, joined by Dan Dicker. He's a lifelong energy market commentator, analyst and author, um, and he makes regular appearances on many major news networks to discuss oil market movements. And uh, we're certainly seeing some of those at the moment. Dan, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me, Seb. Hi. Um, so, Dan, since the start of the year, Brent crude's risen from below $80. It closed at $128 on the 8th of March, dipped back below $100 this week. Today, it's back up to 105 or so. So, so what's your view of, um, uh, of, of these, these high prices? Like, there, because there are competing views about whether oil price cyclicality is a help or a hindrance to the transition. Because you could argue that volatility is good because parabolic price swings hurt consumers and incentivize them to to find alternative views uh, fuels. But but then the opposite argument is that these roller coaster prices deter investment in both long stream, upstream, long cycle upstream resources with a long long term payback, um, and also like any energy intensive economic activity. Uh, where, where, where do you stand on that? Oh, I'm, I'm firmly in the latter camp. I mean, I, and I've been in the latter camp for a long time. I mean, I've written three books about this. And um, in general, I have been uh, since probably uh, 2011 a strong advocate for stabilizing oil prices. To me, the, the uh, disincentive of development of transition fuels and uh, sustainable fuels when oil prices are low far, far, far outweigh the short cycle uh, benefits of, of demand destruction in fossil fuels when oil prices are high. And you can see that. I mean, it's, it's not like I'm, 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 you know, I'm making up a story here. You can see the investment in Europe and the disinvestment in Europe and the United States as these cycles come in and out. And um, for me, my, my number one overarching uh, thesis uh, for the last uh, nigh on 15 years has been you must find a way to stabilize energy, and I mean fossil fuel energy prices, um, and it is, it is truly the only way to move uh, forward and to, it, at the speed we need to move forward in order to really enact a, a proper energy transition. Okay. Um, it, in your, uh, your your most recent title, Turning Oil Green, you describe some of the missteps from OPEC, energy companies, Wall Street, Washington, and even the environmental lobby. And uh, you use an interesting turn of phrase in the book to describe our pivot towards renewables, a circular firing squad where nobody comes away with the goals they're seeking. Can you Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, from all sides, you know, and I've again, I've been an, an observer of, of these markets for 35 years, and, and from all sides, the, the misconceptions and, uh, in fact, the, the blame game that sort of circles around um, uh, energy and the lack of a coherent policy and the political memes that sort of circle around energy continue to uh, hinder us 
from you know finding finding the way finding the way for anybody to get what they want um in this country the 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 right believes that um if only unfettered access to all lands and and consistently ramping up drilling um would solve their their version of what they see as an energy crisis on the left um they would like very much to see oil companies uh disappear and go broke they they view them as as the devil even now i mean in the united states there's this huge left wing screaming about um a gouging uh that's supposedly going on uh from fossil fuel companies which is completely false and and uh, misses the point entirely and in general the left has um um uh, villainized oil companies and to the degree that they almost um they worked very very hard to uh, remove them to uh, isolate them from the coming energy transition which you know in my view is is about the, the largest mistake they could possibly make because most of the technology infrastructure and and uh, manpower uh that energy markets require is is uh, owned and maintained by large energy companies and uh i mean you're going to need their help to make this transition as fast as you possibly can um they want to help they've proven that over the course of the last 5 6 years uh, uh oil companies particularly where you are in europe have worked very very hard to try and become um uh more receptive to uh um renewable and other sustainable fuels and are developing them as as quickly as they can and have uh zero carbon um programs in place um and the left continues to want to excoriate them remove them divest have people divest from them and otherwise force them to go broke which is to me just completely counterproductive to what we're trying to trying to uh to accomplish here uh yeah i'm i'm wondering if the crisis that that we're witnessing is um it 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 if it's really kind of giving rise to a new realization about um what what the energy world really needs and because we we've, we've been through a period of relative abundance when prices have been a lot more stable um well i say that um, <laughs> discounting of course the the covid crash um but of course that created this enormous glut and a sense almost of complacency around um around this this kind of availability of the fuels that the, the world needs to, uh, to to tick on over every day um and i i wonder if we 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 might be coming coming up to a watershed moment where there's a realization that um okay we need to kind of uh, kind of all encompassing view of what the energy transition needs to be and the policy that 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 needs to happen that that brings everybody with us and doesn't kind of alienate certain actors from from contributing towards the 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 common goal i i think you are exactly right and i have spent the last 2 weeks writing column after column for my subscribers and in general you know everywhere and and reading them as well from other from other uh, energy analysts um of of this kind of possibility that may come out of the horrors of this ukraine um invasion that you know there is a moment clearly the europeans have decided that they don't want to see a repeat of world war 2 and that industry is going to turn away from um uh, putin and the russian uh, oil and gas machine and they're taking uh, positive actions in order to isolate them and the uh, the sales 
of uh, energy to Europe and um, curtail the ability of Russia to uh, finance themselves with, with these kinds of sales. And what that brings with it, obviously, is a need for Europe to find very, very quick and available um, alternative sources of energy to supplant uh, Russian supplies with. And this has brought uh, a real politic into the conversation where a lot of these memes have been sort of swept away and uh, people have been forced to realize that, yes, fossil fuels are going to be a huge part of the energy portfolio going forward for the next 30 years, even as it starts to give up some of its um, preeminence to other um, uh, transition fuels and renewables as we move forward. But it will remain a large part of the uh, the energy complex and cannot be washed away, swept away, destroyed, you know, um, uh, by left-wing groups who are looking to, to see uh, us make an immediate jump from um, gas and oil to uh, solar and wind. So, you know, that to me is the most heartening thing I have seen uh, of this disaster that first began with the energy crisis in Europe during the winter and then this invasion into Ukraine uh, over the course of the last three and a half weeks. And I certainly hope you're right. I'm praying that you're right. I mean, I wrote uh, one particular book, my last one, showing some methodology to try and get everybody at the table together. But, you know, clearly that was born out of a lot of wishful thinking, you know, the, the, the partisan nature of the politics here in the United States and in Europe are, are so toxic that it's very difficult, even as I was writing it, for me to believe that, you know, half the stuff I was writing had any possibility at all of coming uh, true. But in this Ukraine uh, reaction, you have seen you know, a very unified, uh, running across all political stripes. Uh, oil companies have, you know, abandoned uh, Russian projects that were worth tens of billions of dollars with no hope of, of retrieving those assets and, and no desire to retrieve those assets. Uh, there are very few oil, oil and gas companies that want to do business in Russia. There are very few traders who have no moral compass whatsoever who want to, you know, deal in, in Russian cargoes. And, uh, you know, this is, this is new to me. This is absolutely remarkable to me. This is, uh, you know, uh, and, it's, and it's very heartening to me that um, uh, everybody has kind of um, uh, realized there is a need for some unity on this for Europe to find um, energy security. And with energy security, just plain security. And I guess there's, you know, there's nothing that will move people um, – towards an honest conversation uh, about these things than really the threat of, you know, uh, another Hitler or another, you know, uh, invasion or another war, world war, that would sweep over, you know, the European continent. Uh, yeah, I, I really feel like we're seeing this, um, uh, it, it, it's like a, 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 the compass has been, reoriented from you know like fossil versus renewable to almost like just western energy versus autocratic energy it, it's this part of the kind of whole deglobalization narrative means a kind of retrenchment around geography and if that means domestic energy sources can be produced at the expense of those being imported from from regimes that are frankly despicable then that's really encouraging however you have to look at what's being done to to replace russian barrels in in the market and that's 
um, you know, lot, lots and lots of calls from London and Washington to, to Riyadh um, and to other capitals in the Middle East. Um, and of course, the, uh, the kind of the, the attempt to get Iranian barrels back into the market and, and even calls to Caracas to get a regime that's not even recognised as being legitimate to, to, to somehow find a way around those sanctions to get those barrels back into the market. So it, it, it's like on one hand, it's encouraging, but on the other hand, you've got to look at the sheer volume of oil that is, that is um, presided over by autocratic and despicable governments. And, and you think, well, we actually, because you say, you know, you're absolutely right, so we can't live without these fuels in the immediate term. And yet maybe, I don't know, 40, 50, 60 percent of them come from governments that we can't tolerate. So, so there's also like a real, a real, a real poser there about how, how we power the world without kind of sustaining these, these, these awful governments. So, so let's make one thing clear, that when we, when we curtail Russian um, oil and gas from coming to Europe, coming to the West, I think that the way that you're, you're seeing this is exactly right. This is a Western energy, both renewable, sustainable, and fossil fuel versus Eastern totalitarian energy. I think that's the, the proper and correct way to, 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 um, uh, to frame this argument. And the point is that you do not, in fact, upset all that much the global uh, supply and demand picture of oil. What you do is you restrict, you curtail those authoritarian barrels to go, to continue to travel inside of authoritarian regimes. I follow these markets very, very closely, and Russian barrels have been finding a new home. It's not like they haven't, but they've been forced to go dark. They've been forced to be sold at huge discounts. The transfer of, of capital that goes back and forth between these cargos has been, you know, very curtailed and weak. So that in general, the global amount of supply that's being made available hasn't really decreased all that much despite all the pressure they put on Russia. But what has happened is that you've gotten the Russians to, to you've, you've forced them into dark pools and to trade with other authoritarian or at least authoritarian leaning regimes, including China and to a large degree to my dismay, India. This is where a lot of these Russian barrels are going. Now, that the Russians continue to try and, and ask other uh, uh, um, places to see if they can find some expertise and markets to sell their barrels. They've gone recently to Iran. They've started to talk to Iran. I don't think the Iranians are interested. They're more interested in getting the JCPOA signed and being part of the Western, at least the Western marketplace, when it comes to their oil. So this is, this is the kind of war we can win. We not only have enough resources in terms of Western-controlled barrels and, and gas to supply and supplant European supplies for the most part, you know, if we do the right things over the next two, three years. We also have the technology to much more efficiently get this stuff out of the ground and, of course, move forward smartly towards solar, wind, and, and um, green hydrogen, for example which the authoritarian governments do not have. This is the kind of war we can win. This is the masterstroke in many ways that I see from the Biden administration and from the Europeans in general. They know that it's, this, it's on the economic side, it's on the energy side, 
that they can win the long war here and not on the military side where they have chosen very, very wisely to not play into Putin's hands where he has, uh, a, you know, a certain um, equal kind of force or at least at least as powerfully uh, dangerous a force as the West does. So I think that you've framed this absolutely correctly, and this is, um, this is the most exciting conversation and the most exciting um, point from an energy guy, from me, um, that I have seen in the last 30 years. Let, let's bring it back to cyclicality, the, the, the topic of the show. Um, oil has always been an incredibly cyclical commodity. And um, also, it, it, it's like the most politicized of commodities. And those two things are related. Um, oil trade is the driver of geopolitical relations. It's very difficult to disentangle oil from statehood, from money and power. Um, but you, you've described to me in the past about the need for a kind of a stabilization of the oil price and, uh, and, and also like a, a kind of high and stable price that allows investment to be made in long cycle projects, but at the same time creates an incentive to find alternatives, which, you know, because with the price being high, then it, then it creates a kind of a competitive leverage for alternative sources. It, it's like how how do you get away from that cyclicality, considering the factors that underpin it, the volatility, and um, and 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 so is this all kind of wishful thinking? This idea that we can get to a place where oil prices are have a modicum of stability and can be kind of gradually phased out, because this phase out is not going to be um, like a kind of nice gentle ramp down into a renewable world, is it? I can't see any alternative apart from one that's very messy. Well, I think there needs to be, first of all, there needs to be uh, a conversation with uh, multinational and independent oil companies. And they have to be made to understand that their ability to haphazardly or at their leisure or at their, you know, at their greatest profitability uh, remove the natural resources that belong to all of us, basically, in the ground inside of uh, the United States, in the Gulf of Mexico, in, in Mexico, in um, uh, the African nations and, you know, in, in other places around the world, these natural resources are as important to the world as anything. So their ability um, to, uh, to draw them out whenever they choose, at any amount that they choose, needs to be stopped. There needs to be, and uh, this is where I beat up on, on oil companies, a far more disciplined approach to regulating when, where, and how fossil fuels come out of the ground. Now, we have, for example, we have in this country the most despicable example of that lack of discipline in natural gas, where for the past five years we have watched oil companies literally burn natural gas at the wellhead or flare it, just throw it into the atmosphere uh, because it was worth less than it would require them to put in a pipeline and get to market. This is just an out outrageous kind of waste of limited natural resources that we obviously are going to need. We need it right now. And the amount of natural gas that was thrown into the atmosphere just burned and turned into, you know, horrible carbon in the atmosphere uh, is the, – the numbers are insane. And that should have stopped 10 years ago. No one anywhere should be allowed to drill a well 
and pull up oil and natural gas unless they intend to bring every drop and every MMBTU of gas to market there. There needs to be very strong regulation. That's only the first kind of example I could give you in where you can um, uh, control to a certain degree with regulation what oil companies are allowed to bring in the ground. Now, on the plus side for oil companies, to make them come along with you, you promise to give them a stabilized price in a marketplace. You're going to use the markets to try and stabilize prices so that they reflect the way that every other thing in the world moves. That is, uh, milk, um, um, houses, cars, uh, you know, look at anything you want. Uh, They generally, because of inflation, go up a limited amount or not a limited amount sometimes, but they generally go up over time. Oil is the only thing in the world that doesn't for some, for for terrible reasons that, you know, I I talk about forever in these books. But you need to give oil companies the assurances that when they put money into an investment, it won't be a losing investment eight, ten months down the road or a year, year and a half down the road. And there are ways you can do that by uh, controlling the input and output in in various governmental ways. Here in the United States, we have a... um, a, um, uh, a stockpile, a government stockpile that could be used to sort of act as buffers both when oil prices get too high and, and oil prices get too low. I would I- expand that and make that more of a global kind of way to buffer markets back and forth. And I think, you know, there's a lot to be done here. It's not easy. It's very complicated. But the first thing you have to do is without rancor, you have to bring oil companies into the conversation and have them understand that they need to be part of the solution. And like I, I say, they're not stupid. They know this this world is moving towards renewables. It has to. And they know that. They've been working on these technologies for a long time, carbon capture and, 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 and wheat. I mean, you can go through the, the thousands of projects they've been dealing with um, and trying to bring to market. So I think they're ready for that kind of conversation. Um, and we have to make a global commitment to that conversation. That doesn't mean... You know, any U.S. administration necessarily, but I think that um, there needs to be uh, understanding with the the West inside of European countries and here in the United States that uh, the the process of moving forward in in a in an efficient way towards renewables starts with um, regulating and and managing these very limited, very important uh, natural resources of oil and gas. Uh, yeah, and you're right. I think it is easier said than done because the idea of um, – oh, we, we even saw, in fact, an example of um, the Biden administration um, using the uh, strategic st- stockpiles uh, as a way to kind of buffer against uh, some of the volatility we saw before Christmas and, and after, in fact. And, and I think it had the opposite effect, didn't it, like when they announced – these withdrawals from the SPR, then the price it's actually so limited. Rose. The SPR is so limited a tool. It needs to be expanded 20-fold. I mean, that's really what I'm saying here. It needs to be expanded 20-fold, and that includes um, being a buyer of oil if prices, you know, get beneath a certain uh, number. Uh, and and supporting the way that the way that the Federal Reserve, for example, supports bonds during a recession by buying all sorts of crap paper and sticking it, you know, in storage and waiting for a better time to sell it back. And it's not like this hasn't been done in other markets. It's been done ad infinitum during the, uh, you know, the the, um, uh, the downturn. 
um, by the federal government, by the Fed. And, you know, I think that if anything is as, at least as important as, you know, the stock market and the bond market, I think it's the oil market. At least that's the way I feel. Of course, I'm a little bit biased. I, that's what I do. Okay. But, so this would apply to um, the, the, the domestic price of – or the American price of gasoline uh, – of, 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 you're talking about WTI, well, essentially. No domestic price. I mean, that's the beauty part about oil. Oil is a global commodity. And if you can support the price of the United States – you will be, in fact, supporting the price in Europe. And, in fact, if you can relieve uh, a, a, a too high price in the United States, you will, in, you know, in essence, relieve a high price in Europe. That's the, the wondrous nature of oil. That's the positive nature of oil. Wherever something happens in the world um, to affect supplier demand affects oil prices everywhere. It's a global commodity, and uh, you can affect, um, you know, great changes using, you know, one market if it's strong enough. And the United States market is definitely strong enough. But combined with the European markets, it's completely strong enough. Yeah. I, I just wonder, you know, like the, the, the size of the SPR, what it would need to be to influence global prices. We're talking a phenomenal investment. Well, you'd be surprised. I mean, again, you know, you can support an entire stock market with, with you know, the Federal Reserve even threatening to buy bad paper, right? I mean, sometimes – um, in markets, free markets where traders are involved, you don't have to buy a lot of bonds to support the, uh, you know, the, the, the U.S. stock market. And we've seen that. They didn't, they didn't really have to buy all that much considering, you know, how much of, of, of it there is out there. You know, you sort of put in this sort of endless put into a marketplace with bonds and uh, all of a sudden the stock market starts to rally and uh, because traders kind of jump ahead of the Fed. And they will do that in the oil market too. Um, and uh, you know, if you have it, if you have the market set up this in a, in a way, and I'm not saying this is easy, Seb. This is hard. This is like a, the the kind of big idea which doesn't happen overnight, and is and is not something you know that I've just ripped out of you know over the, you know out of my head you know on the fly. This is something I've thought about for a couple of decades now, having watched oil markets gyrate and make this sinusoidal wave up and down for, you know, basically it's 25 years now, 30 years. Uh, and to me, that's the, the way to, to fix that or at least get some stability into the market is in the same way that the Federal Reserve has found a way to combat huge recessions in, um, in, in, in their own economy. And that's, that's, that's a way to use the markets um, as a positive effect uh, uh, for, for everybody. Yeah. And I, I guess the issue we need to look at then is physical delivery. And that's particularly relevant for WTI because it is a physically settled contract where you have to take physical delivery in Cushing in Oklahoma. Um, and so there's, there's a, there are limitations to what you can do on paper when you also have to, to have that physical settlement. Um, yes and no. I mean, the, the physical markets have very much followed futures markets for my entire career. And the ability of physical markets to move outside of futures markets has been very, very small. It happens. I've seen it happen. I've seen these physical markets displaced. Um, what's been uh, incredible to me is that for, for a large part of my career, I, I in fact witnessed in the early part of my career, um, in around the 2000s, um, after Clinton signed, you know, the um, the uh, the act to to uh, to open up commodity markets, 
um, that oil became very much a physical market, from a physical market to a financial market, and that the futures markets and the basis markets that surround those futures markets, all financial, all paper, uh, now pretty much control the physical markets. Nobody goes to a physical market and, and says, I'm not paying this because um, the physical market you know, won't bear it. They look at all the, uh, the paper prices, and that's what everybody uses. And that's, that's been a huge change, no doubt, that you know, when that happened. But it, it happened 20 years ago, and uh, right now – it is, it is, you know, the, 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 oil, the oil companies that matter the most are, are not uh, Exxon and, and, um, and BP. It's, you know, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and, and Vitol and, and uh, Glencore and Trifigura and all of these, these um, paper, paper guys and, and traders out there. That's what's controlling the markets and the prices. Yeah, but it's also the OPEC cartel. It's also Saudi Aramco. It's the national oil companies. They're the ones who who really move the market, right? And uh, and so how how can we how can we kind of have this this concept of a a stabilizing mechanism when you have this cartel of producers that have so much market power? And the OPEC has been written off time and again, and they keep coming back with like with every kind of new cycle. They come back with almost renewed force. We saw the price war at the beginning of the pandemic. And as soon as that dissipated, then you kind of see this kind of retrenchment around market power. It just seems to be in, in, invincible almost. I've never written them off. And, and people who have called for the end of OPEC, I, I thought were, were, were completely wrong and have been proven to be wrong time and time again. What you do have is you have power over what we call the marginal barrel price. And um, in the end, that's really all that counts. Now, I could go into a long discussion on, you know, how you come up with a marginal barrel price. Um, it's, it's, it's a tough concept, but, you know, think about it like, think about everybody going into a big Turkish bazaar, and uh, nobody knows what the price is going to be, and they're selling one thing. Let's say they're selling baskets, and everybody's basket is as good as the next guy's basket. But some of the people that are coming into the basket market it costs them $5 to make a basket. Other people, it costs them $50 to make a basket. But there's no difference between baskets. And the buyers also come in from all over the world. And then the bargaining starts. You open up a marketplace, and then the bargaining starts. Um, until you feel, fill the demand of baskets among all the buyers, the sellers will continue to come into the market to, to, uh, to fill that amount for demand. Now, the $5 guys who are making baskets for 5 bucks, they may only want $15 for their baskets. But the people who are making $50 uh, baskets, they need $75, you know, to get. Otherwise, they won't, they won't come back into the market. They won't, they won't make any more baskets. So over the course of a very short period of time, and in markets this is instantaneous, you come up with a price, a benchmark price, this is what Brent is, basically. You come up with a benchmark price where everybody agrees that's what they're going to get for baskets, where the demand is filled to the degree that it can be filled, and with the, with the person who supplies that basket at the price where he's willing to provide that last basket because everybody needs to have their demand filled. So that price is always the highest price because you've got to you've got to be able to satisfy the guy who's making the most expensive basket 
who's filling that last basket that's needed to, you know, to take care of demand. That is, in essence, the marginal barrel price. So OPEC makes baskets for five bucks, okay? But the United States can't do that. They make baskets for at least 45 or $50. And the ability in a huge global marketplace is that the United States, with their 10 million barrels, which they may, it's not an insignificant amount, in fact control the marginal price of oil. And if you can get a handle on that, you can, in fact, control what OPEC will sell for. Uh, they really don't have much of a choice because these oil barrels, these baskets, one basket is as good as the next. So if they don't want to, you know, they'll, they'll take, they have to take the price that the marginal barrel says they're going to take. And they suffered as much as anybody um, when oil prices were cheap, when the marginal barrel was, you know, $30. Um, their, you know, their economies fell off a cliff, and they were forced to cut back social spending by more than fifty percent. So um, everybody is uh, at, you know, is at the whim of uh, global uh, oil prices. Sure, and I like your analogy, and let, let's stick with that. The the idea of the, the basket market. Um, let's just imagine these all these baskets on display. Some of them are made with let's just say for argument's sake child labor some of them are made by burning and emitting huge amounts of uh, methane and carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and uh, and some of them are made they're kind of made using the cleanest most organic renewable sustainably sourced materials um you know i'm talking about like the the the, the environmental footprint the carbon footprint that each barrel brings to market do you see that becoming relevant? Because you say every, bar- every basket at the moment is the same, it doesn't matter. But there is this kind of emerging narrative that, that cleaner barrels will become more valued in the marketplace. Um, how do you see that kind of driving trade? Does, will it start to matter? Will it be the case that not all barrels are the same? I, I think it already has. Again, I'm sorry I used, you know, some of these analogies get so simple, so simplistic that they, they, they you know, remove all of the, you know, all of the nuances of the oil market, which are many and, and complex. So, first of all, you know, every every basket being the same as every other basket isn't true, and benchmark prices only give you, you know, a limited kind of viewpoint into how oil is traded around the world. There's tons of benchmarks all over the world, and uh, the way that, you know, baskets are made has an impact, obviously. The Canadian oil sands industry was the first to go broke, even though it's the cheapest barrel to make, Right. And it had a difficult time getting uh, penetration into the U.S. market, particularly because the left um, was so um, fervently against it and did a tremendous job of making, you know, markets aware of the filthy nature of oil sands. And um, their, and their, you know, their motion against uh, Keystone XL, you know, during the 2010s, you know, the Part of, part of my problem with the, with the right is they keep on bringing up Keystone. I mean, it's been dead for 15 years. Let it go already. Um, so, yes, these things do matter. There are, there, are, um, there are forces out there that are working. And, again, regulation can be a huge help in um, dissuading um, oil sands producers to enter the market, you know, on an equal footing with those that make low sulfur uh, oils, or even um, uh, supplanting natural gas 
which is you know five six times cleaner than oil and requires a whole lot less processing and a whole lot less energy to, to turn it into something useful uh, than than oil does uh, for other oil barrels. All of these things are part of you know I, I think a unified kind of movement that the United States and Europe has to make together. Uh, that can get us to the road we need to get on. And we got it. I mean, I, I, I know this goes without saying because this is the work that you do, but we're way behind the ball on this. This this should have happened. Oh, this should have been happening a long, long time ago. That's why I'm hopeful right now that we'll find, you know, the silver lining in, in all of this destruction going on in Europe. Yeah, I, I hope so. And um, just on the kind of left-right thing, and you're talking about methane regulations particularly, um, the, the right has resisted, I think, um, the, 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 the kind of imposition of, of stronger federal uh, uh, regulations against methane yeah, venting and flaring. Right. Here's what I give to the right. I, I'm giving them full-throated governmental support of the fossil fuel industry, okay? I'm not going to allow um, 500... Um, disciplined oil producers with their jobs and their um, and their uh, um, um, their contributions into the national economy go broke during a down cycle like they did over the last five years in the United States, and that was that was through the Trump administration. Okay, so the right has a certain obligation to take care of their constituencies in oil states by making sure that they protect the jobs there. And the, the, what I'm going to give them is I'm going to give them a stabilized price of production that allows them to keep the lights on, keep the jobs going, keep these oil companies and their tax revenues flowing and um, being a part of the, the national economy. So there's, in all ways, there's, there's give and take, right? The right doesn't get everything they want. The left doesn't get everything they want. But on balance, everybody gets, you know, what they need, I think. What, what the right needs is they need continued support from their oil-rich states that, you know, need them to support their industry in order for them to get reelected. I mean, that's the bottom line there, right? And the left needs an, a, 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 a nationalized energy policy that moves this country as fast as it can away from fossil fuels and towards uh, renewables and other sustainable technologies. And in this way, I think this is the only way to do that where everybody can get in the room and, you know, not be 100% satisfied, but at least move forward together. Yeah. How optimistic are you on a scale of 0 to 10 that we're going to see that kind of bipartisan path forwards emerging to, to actually deliver uh, like to end the circular firing squad and to get everybody kind of working in unison towards a common goal do you think we're actually ever going to get there <laughs> i mean i mean i i you know i i uh, you know i was i was at a two when i wrote the book where, where am i now <laughs> i'm at a five i don't know i'm a four or five i'm and that's hopeful i mean i you know look i i've been I've been observing this for a very long time, and I'm now 61 years old. And I, I wrote this book for my kids. And, uh, you know, I wrote the last two books for my kids. It was almost like, this is what I see. This is what I've seen for the past 35 years. This is the path forward that I see is the only one that makes sense. And I had to put it down on paper and do what I can to get on podcasts like yours and talk about it with you and others and, uh, you know, see what I can drum up in terms of interest from governments and, and from other intelligent, you know, industry people 
uh, you know, that this is this is a, a way to kind of uh, reorganize how we're looking at, at energy. Now, <laughs> will, will they take, you know, my ideas, you know, at face value and put them in play? No, but, I, you know, if they could at least start an honest conversation, I'd feel like I've done something. The conversation that's going on right now is crap. It's, it's nonsense. Both sides are talking nonsense well you i won't go through it again but it's 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 daily a maddening process for me to as you know you're on twitter like i am to watch the stupidity from both sides just spew out and you just after a while you go this is a waste of time but i continue to try and talk to intelligent people like you who understand these things from practical real world point and there are there are some of us out there who understand these things uh, to please, you know, help me and convince, you know, other people of, of intelligence that, you know, there are there are things we can do and we can move forward and we can make we can make progress here. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree about the, the, the poor level of quality of the conversation. I mean, even the president standing up and starting pointing fingers about the gas price not coming down. Terrible, quick enough. It's like, terrible, come on. terrible terrible it was a it was a wonderful speech it was a speech for the ages it was it was uh you know a kind of uh fantastic uh speech you know against the authoritarian government and then he started talking about gouging and i was like what is the matter with you why must you throw red meat to your to your side you're doing something beyond that don't do that and but uh, you know (laughs) what what can i say that's every every politician seems to need to somehow placate their 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 um their their radical wing their 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 further out wing, in order to you know retain you know their uh, control of the party and it's a shame uh, particularly because he knows better he's got you know Brian Deese who was the BlackRock guy inside of renewable energy trading uh, before he joined the Biden administration they know markets there he knows that's nonsense uh, but you know they still have to say it. Yeah, I think the problem is democracy and the fact that there's all, particularly in America, you guys in the States, you guys have always have an election or a midterm just over the horizon. You're always just playing to that that next cycle. And it's so difficult to get away from that. You've got to keep the base on side. You can't alienate people. You've got to kind of, and that unfortunately is kind of part of this creating a broad church is that maybe you've got to accept the, the 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 narrative will kind of go off piste a bit just to kind of keep a certain faction on board and to not alienate them and then kind of keep everybody together but at the same time it undermines trust because if you're actually just speaking bollocks then you're not you're not you're not being truthful to your constituents about the state of the market and what needs to happen so i don't really know how to reconcile those two things i i'm not i'm not sure either you know i Seb, I'm an oil guy, and 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 you know I, I I like to follow politics, but I don't know how to fix the um, you know the partisan nature of this, particularly here in the United States. Uh, and again, that's why I'm hopeful. You know, I've seen both sides pretty much support what's going on, what they're doing against Russia in, in Europe, and 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 supporting um, the Ukrainians. Um, All right, Dan, where can people find you? Um, I'm dandicker.com. You can sign up. I have a, a free newsletter you can be a part of. And then hopefully from there you, you become part of some of my paid services, which try to deliver a little more insight and also some investment advice. Uh, that's that's basically what I do. I try to um, use some of the insights I have in energy markets to uh, generate um, some good ideas for uh, people if they want to invest in both the uh, 
the traditional fossil fuel and renewable space. Cool. Thank you, Dan, for your time. And uh, yes, yeah, a quick reminder, you can also sign up for my newsletter. Uh, it's not so much geared towards investment advice, but just taking an honest look at this incredibly convoluted process, the energy transition, and uh, increasingly the energy crisis. Unfortunately, I started this newsletter full of kind of optimism about this quote-unquote accelerating energy transition. And it turns out the acceleration was towards a kind of global energy crisis, which I... Uh, perhaps maybe should have seen coming, but certainly it's kind of hitting us now with full effect. But I'm, I'm trying to cover that um, in as much detail as I can from a European perspective, I've not about natural gas, um, because that seems to be the, the, the crux of the issue in Europe is like, how are we going to stay warm, keep the lights on during this transition? And gas is kind of the, the hero and the villain at the same time. Um, so I write a lot about that. If you're interested, head on over to www.energyflux. News. Dan, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much for your time, and um, hopefully we'll have you on again at some point. I hope so. Seb, uh, to give you a pat on the back, um, the reason that I wanted so much to appear on your podcast is because I think you do some tremendous work there at Energy Flux. I've enjoyed your writings, and, and uh, again, I think that uh, you know this, this, this topic you talked about, like missing the, the crisis that was coming, was something I've been, you know, trying to clue you in on for a while, and I'm glad I got the chance to to speak with you uh, today. Brilliant. That's very kind of you to say. Thanks for your time, Dan. Thank you, Seb. Bye-bye.